All right, First Chronicles 18 to 20 is what we'll look at tonight. And uh, we'll also look at a couple of things elsewhere in Scripture uh, that um, helps us to understand the flow, the big picture of Scripture. What you'll see in First Chronicles 18 to 20 is David's battles. And so when God makes promises in the Bible, those who respond well to his promises usually act right away. So we'll look at one example of those um, promises. And if you think of how the New Testament books are set up, when God gives a lot of promises or theology at the beginning of Paul's letters, then he gives application in the second part, like what to do with what you just heard. So that's kind of how uh, the First uh, Chronicles 16 and 17, especially 17 with the Davidic covenant, play into, okay, so now David's got promised this kingdom. He realizes he is in the line of the Messiah and eternal kingdom. So now it's time to act. And so he goes, and that's how this uh, this is set up. So First Chronicles 18, 19, 20, you'll see David conquering, David conquering, David conquering, uh, killing a lot of the enemies immediately around uh, Israel, and then even going as far as, and only as far as the uh, covenant that God makes with Abraham. So David is not out to conquer the world. World domination is not his thing. <laughs> He's not a crazy dictator uh, like uh, people that want to conquer the world. What he's doing is, and what we'll see, he's limited to uh, the boundaries that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as God gives Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the promise uh, of the land, uh, the boundaries for the land are the Euphrates River in the far north, and you'll see the Euphrates River in our passage tonight, and then the River of Egypt, which um, is likely not uh, the... Uh, Nile River, but a smaller river that is the border of Egypt on top of the Red Sea. And so that's in the south, Euphrates River in the north. And the time of Joshua, Joshua 21, uh, we see in Joshua 21 that God, uh, that the Israelites have conquered all the land that God said to them. I'll read you a verse from Joshua 21, uh, verse 43. So, so the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. So that is, um, they uh, conquered all the land that God wanted them to. And we, chapter 18, 19, and 20 of First Chronicles sounds a lot like the book of Joshua, which if you read through the book of Joshua, you're thinking, if they trust God, they win. doesn't matter how big the army is, doesn't matter how many kings are <laughs> involved. It doesn't matter if there's chariots. It doesn't matter that if they trust God, God will even hold the day that the sun stood still and just God will help them push the walls of Jericho down. Not hard for God. So you trust God and then uh, he wins. That's kind of how first Chronicles 18 to 20 plays out because it's right after 17, which David's promised his kingdom. And now he goes and acts and starts taking all of the promised land that God promised to Israel and we'll look at, hold your hand here in First Chronicles 18, and we'll go to the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 12. When we went through, um, and as we go through the Old Testament, there are so many times that going back to Genesis 12 is necessary because this covenant uh, comes up again and again and again. So in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, is called the Abrahamic covenant. 
And we see in Genesis 12, now the Lord said to Abram, go to you, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So he says, go to the land that I will show you. That's verse one. And after the uh, promise to Abram, look at verse four. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old. Now, in these days, uh, different than nowadays, but in these days, wherever you were born, that's where you lived. That's where your kids would live. That's where your grandkids would live. You would just stay in that. And you had to have a really good reason to go outside of and spread out a little bit if it got too crowded. But you wouldn't go far. You would stay near your family. So for Abram to be told to go thousand a thousand miles away, like <laughs> you imagine everybody talking to Abram saying, why are you going so far away? <laughs> well, God told me to. And he told me that I was going to be a blessing. And then in my family, all the earth is going to be blessed. But God promises Abram a land. So there's three parts of the Abrahamic covenant. And these three parts are reiterated throughout Genesis and Exodus. And uh, I counted how many times, there's a chart that I found online, how many times that uh, the Abrahamic covenant, the great nation, uh, the land, and the blessing in you, all the families who there shall be blessed. How many times each these uh, reoccur? And you'll find that the blessing in you, all the families who there shall be blessed is five different times. You'll find the great nation. I'll make of you a great nation. That's 12 times. But the land promise, 20 times. 20 times in uh, non-consecutive verses. So if it, it mentions it back-to-back it -back verses, I didn't count that. So non-consecutive verses where there's a gap and it, God says it again. And I will look at, uh, I'll just mention some of those uh, about the land promise. And David, after having been given his covenant, he's got the covenant that he's going to have this great nation, or that he's going to be the king, and he's going to have this kingdom. And he can go back, and he probably did to know how to transport the ark. He went back and looked at what the promises made to Abram and said, oh, these are the, this is the boundary of the promised land. And if you look back, it says in, uh, let me find a, a place where it says the dimensions of the promised land given. Um, it says in Exodus 6 to uh, Moses, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. And I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you for possession. He's talking to the Israelites through uh, Moses before the Exodus. There's a, another verse um, that talks about the specific uh, dimensions. Let's see if I can find it here. Yeah, so Exodus 23, right after the Ten Commandments. Exodus 23, 31. And I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, which is the Mediterranean Sea, and from the wilderness to the River Euphrates. If you look on a map, almost to the top of where the Mediterranean Sea is, so pretty much all the land today of Syria, Lebanon, and modern-day Israel, all of that land is promised um, to the nation of Israel. Not only that, the promise to Abraham, there is um, many that say that the, that the uh, promise of a great nation was already fulfilled, and the land promise was already fulfilled. Mm -hmm. 
and in you all the earth uh, shall be blessed, all that has been fulfilled. The problem with that is five different times as the uh, Abrahamic covenant about the land is given, five different times he uses the word forever. Now, we have just seen in First Chronicles 17 the word forever six times. So as David gets the promise of a forever kingdom, David's not thinking, oh, my kingdom is probably going to last a couple hundred years. <laughs> He's probably taking God at his word, literally thinking, this is an everlasting kingdom. So listen to these verses from uh, the reiteration of the land promise. In Genesis 13, the chapter after it was first given, verse uh, 15, all the land you see, I will give it to you and your descendants forever. I will give it to you. In Genesis 17, also to Abram, I will give you, in verse 8, I will give you and your descendants after you all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. That's only two times. There's three more. Genesis 48 to Jacob. God says to Jacob, I will make Jacob fruitful and numerous, and I'll give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. And that's the third time. And the fourth time, Exodus 32, uh, 13, um, he's talking to Moses at, after the golden calf incident uh, and says, all this land of which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So we have at least four times, I counted five one time, and I don't remember where I, I, the other one went to, but um, so God promised this forever and everlasting possession twice and forever uh, twice. So in those four times to Abram, to Jacob, to Moses, God reiterates this promise of a land and he attaches to that promise this word forever. Or everlasting and we'll see at the end why that is important and we'll come back to um, we'll go back to first chronicles 18 now so david has the uh knowledge of the abrahamic covenant in his his mind he has responded to the davidic covenant that we just saw in first uh, chronicle 17 and now he starts conquering all of the uh, Gentiles, all those who are living inside the promised land and that have taken over or immigrated, as the Philistine did a lot of, um, from the time the, of the conquest, 1400 BC, to the time that David lives, 1000 BC. So 400 years have passed since they completely conquered the promised land in Joshua 21. And now we're, uh, David is like, okay, so there are a lot of nations that have moved in our borders that God has promised us. So that's the idea here of uh, chapters 18, 19, and 20. David starts uh, warring. And if he can conquer all these with God's help, then his son is able to, in a peaceful reign, his son's able to build the temple. And we'll also see how God uses all these nations to supply the temple project. And David's not going to build it, but he's going to start gathering wealth. And we'll see later on how much wealth he's able to gather from all of his military spoils. Uh, chapter 1 of verse 
chapter 18, verse 1. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and he took Gath and its villages out of the hand of the Philistines. Gath is one of those five uh, cities of the Philistines that they had uh, their own uh, king of Gath, and he conquers Gath completely. And now it's an Israelite city. Uh, verse 2, and he defeated Moab. So the Philistines are on the west side, directly west of Jerusalem. Moab is on the east side of the Jordan River next to the Dead Sea. And he defeats Moab, and the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. So tribute is an important idea here. You'll see it several times. And this is how kings that conquered other kings would cause these kings um, to pay them taxes. And so uh, he's obviously going to start bringing wealth in to the kingdom of Israel as these nations that he conquers that survive some of them, they're going to start paying taxes. Uh, you'll see this name throughout these three chapters. We're not going to read all three chapters, but you'll see David defeating Hadadezer. You'll see him mentioned several times. He probably lives far north near the Euphrates River. It's mentioned that he went to set up a monument for himself at the river Euphrates. So he lives far north uh, above where Syria and Damascus are. It tells us about his army here. David took from him a thousand chariots and think of chariots like modern day tanks. If you have tanks and people don't have tanks, you have an advantage. If you had chariots in uh, Old Testament times and your foe didn't have chariots, you were at a disadvantage. Uh, you had an advantage if you had the chariots. 7,000 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. So he probably is likely not uh, amassing a huge army of chariots, which they're told in Deuteronomy not to do. And Solomon breaks that command in Deuteronomy. But 100 chariots is not amassing a huge army of chariots, just enough for uh, probably easier transportation. Uh, verse 5, and when the Syrians of Damascus uh, came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Syria. So whenever someone's paying tribute or you're putting a, a part of your army in a location that's outside of where you're at, you're, you have conquered that people and you can force them to pay taxes and live by your laws. So in Syria of Damascus, okay, and Damascus, we have heard that in the New Testament. Syrians became servants of David and brought tribute. Second time we see the word tribute. So why does all this happen? Verse six tells us why. The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. This, and David would ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name and ascribe victory to the Lord and not to himself. If he wanted to ascribe victory to himself, he would have kept those chariots and not got rid of 900 of them. Okay, it'll be like getting rid of tanks today. You're like, oh, you need, you need the tank. But God said, don't amass for yourself a large number of chariots. You trust in me and I'll help you. And you see in Judge Joshua, every time they trusted God, God won. Doesn't matter how big the army was. And that's how it is with David. As he goes and conquers Philistines who defeated Saul, no problem for David because the Lord was with him. Moab, other side of, uh, of the map, no problem. God is with them. Far north, um, this Hadadezer uh, king who has a huge army, a lot of chariots, no problem. And then uh, the Syrians who were there uh, helping, helping them, uh, no problem with their army. Uh, the Syrians later are going to help the Ammonites who are directly um, 
east of the Jordan River, right above Moab and right next to Jerusalem on a map. And they are going to be fighting them for a little, a few chapters here. We've got people coming and befriending David and uh, thanking him. Look at verse uh, 10. And he sent uh, his son, so this is another king, sends his son to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had often been at war with two, and he sent all sorts of articles of gold, of silver, and of bronze. Now, remember, David wants to build God a house, and he's told he can't. Instead, he's got this covenant, and he's promised his son's going to build the house. So David's thinking, okay, Solomon's still not even alive. <laughs> he's still not born yet. And David knows I can't build the house, but I want to. So every, it's like he's saving. He's in a saving mode. Every single time that someone's giving money to tribute, uh, uh, wealth, uh, spoils of war. And here it's out of a friendly um, covenant or alliance. Uh, this man gives, this king gives him silver and gold. Um, and it says he, let's see what he does with these silver and gold and bronze. Verse 11. These also King David dedicated to the Lord. And so he puts them in a location and says, these are for the Lord's temple. And he amasses a, a extraordinary amount of wealth um, that we'll see uh, before Solomon uh, is even alive. And then as he becomes king, he is set up really well with a huge amount of gold, silver, and bronze. He dedicates them to the Lord. He also dedicates the other things together with the silver and gold that he carried off from all the nations. Now, these immediate nations are all around Jerusalem, all around uh, Judah and Israel. Edom to the south, Moab and the Ammonites are to the east, and the Philistines uh, to the west. And I'm not sure where Amalek is. I think they're a traveling nomadic uh, group of people. Saul defeated them somewhat. And so... All the nations right around them that were inhabiting uh, the promised land, David thoroughly defeats them and takes off all of their silver and gold, carries it off and stores it and says, this is for the Lord. He is responding. So in our um, trying to help us understand, the Lord gives victory to his servant in uh, verse six. Let's also look at verse 13. In verse 13, uh, there's a brother of Joab, Abishai who kills 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt, that is uh, near the Red Sea, Dead Sea, sorry, south of the Dead Sea. And he put garrisons in Edom, and all the Edomites became David's servants, so there obviously happened to pay tribute, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So evidence of that, it's just nation after nation after nation are being um, given over to David's hand. So as the Lord gives victory, David dedicates the spoils to the Lord. Uh, and then verses 14 to 16, David reflects, uh, his servant reflects the glory of the Lord in his administration. Let's see how David reigns. Verse 14, so David reigned over all Israel, and he administered justice and equity to all his people. Those are words that we still hear today, that people want justice and equity. And David, uh, at least at the beginning of his reign, uh, it, you would want to be in his kingdom because he would give you justice. He would be fair with you. Uh, if you worked hard, uh, if you honored God and worshiped God with him, you would be blessed along with David. It tells of, of his administration and who was in charge of things at the end of chapter 18. Chapter 19, uh, 
we're not going to have time to look at every verse, but David's um, kindness is misunderstood. He goes, I think it's a relative of Joab, who is the king of the Ammonites. And David goes to treat them kindly, but instead they take him for spies and they treat uh, David's servants shamefully. Send them away. And uh, they're really provoking David for to war. And uh, David treats his men kindly, uh, even though, um, and he lets them have a reprieve until they're their beards uh, grow back and because um, it was a shameful thing. And then um, his servant has a great uh, neighbor, which is the Ammonites. And you'll see them fighting the Ammonites all of chapter 19 and the beginning of chapter 20. So it seems like the Philistines were the huge enemy in Saul's day, but the Ammonites on the other side uh, of the um, Jordan River are the major enemy that David has to fight. The Ammonites you see here hired 32,000 chariots um, from a king and the king of uh, Mecca with his army in verse 7. And they have a massive amount of people. And so they come. Um, it's a pretty cool battle. You can read about it. But the Ammonites and the Syrians think they have Israel surrounded. And Joab sends half of the soldiers to fight one and he fights the other. And they both end up winning. So instead of being surrounded, they both fight on two fronts and both armies of Israel are victorious. And if you look at verse 18, the Syrians of chapter 19, the Syrians fled before Israel and David killed of the Syrian men, 7,000 chariots, 40,000 foot soldiers and put to death. Also Shopak, the commander of their army. And when the servants of Hadadezer saw that, that he had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with David and became subject to him. So, more wealth coming in, more tribute coming in. And the Syrians were not willing to save the Ammonites anymore. So they said, Ammonites, you guys are on your own. You're closer to Israel. <laughs> we're, we're just going to be servants of David. We're, we're at peace with him. And then uh, the story of Bathsheba is not here. So chapter 20, verses 1 to 3, is where the story of Bathsheba is in 2 Samuel 11. So wondering why that's not there. It seems like a major story and a major consequences of 2 Samuel. Remember the theme of 1 Chronicles. The theme of 1 Chronicles is faithfulness to a God who is faithful to us. And Saul's reign is not mentioned. Only a couple verses. And because why? Because Saul is not faithful to the Lord. And uh, God judges Saul. And his story doesn't play out in Chronicles. Now, Chronicles is written 500 years after this. So if you look back 500 years of history, what do we want to remember about the kingdom of David? We want to remember the covenant that God made with David. We want to remember the victories. We don't, we don't want to remember his weakness, but it's also the, the uh, sin of David isn't important with the faithfulness of God. And so as God wants Israel to remember um, his faithfulness, uh, to David and to the nation of Israel through David. Um, God doesn't remember David's sin. Why? Because David is fully repentant in Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. And you can read about his creating me a clean heart and a broken and a contrite heart God will not despise. And David shows us what that looks like in full repentance. And then as far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove David's sin from him. So we may think of David as the awful adulterer, um, but 
when the chronicles um, are written about him, uh, his sin is not mentioned. It does mention that it was the time when kings go out to war and David doesn't go out to war. It says the same language of 2 Samuel 11, but it doesn't mention uh, sin. Also, chapter 20 is, is quite short with just uh, more conquering how they conquered the, the capital city of the Ammonites, uh, Reba. And then the final um, five verses is the Philistine giants killed. So they're fighting on either side. They're fighting north and south. Everybody is losing to David. And the descendants of Goliath, of course, the descendants of Goliath would have known David. They hated this guy because he killed Goliath, their dad, their brother. And David's family is used to kill, if you look at verse 7, when the this this guy who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, he was a mighty warrior uh, in Gath. Um, when he taunted Israel, verse 7, that sounds a lot like Goliath taunting Israel. Um, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, so David's nephew, strikes him down. And these were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So if you were in Israel living anywhere near these giants and they're all de defeated, uh, you're at peace um, because there's there are no more giants to fear. So fully defeating another enemy to the west and the south. So what do we do with this land? Now, this time in Israel's history, David has conquered all the land like Joshua 21. 400 years earlier, David has conquered all the land that was promised them. We could say, as some say, that the uh, Abrahamic covenant of the land was fulfilled. The problem with that, if, if we're judging a literal interpretation, is, but that's not what Abraham was thinking. That's not what Isaac and Jacob and Moses were thinking. When God reiterated this covenant to them, 2,000 years before Christ, Moses lives about 1,400 years before Christ, David lives 1,000 years before Christ. Abraham, when he got this covenant of a forever land, isn't thinking, oh, 1,000 years, that's all we want, God. God, you said everlasting. You said forever. Not just once, but four times at least. And so how do we, how do we interpret this? And when is the final fulfillment? fulfillment of the land well god is not done with the nation of israel there are some that think that um that the church in the new testament has completely replaced israel we call that replacement theology but that's not true and i'll show you from uh romans chapter 11 why we know in the new testament this isn't the case so if you want to go to romans chapter 11 there are passages of granted in Galatians and Hebrews and Acts that talk about God's promises, but I think it's the blessing of God, the third part of the covenant, not the land that's um, in, um, in view. So when is the land promise of the everlasting possession and forever Israel's land, when is it finally realized? It's partially fulfilled in Joshua 21 David conquers it, and it's partially fulfilled then. But even then, that's only a thousand years, and that's not everlasting, and that's not forever. David wasn't thinking, my forever kingdom is only going to be good for a thousand years. He was thinking, God told me six times, it's forever. It's going to be forever. 
The Messiah has to come and has to be part of this for it to be forever. And so when it comes to the land, the Messiah has to be in the back of our mind. The Messiah has to be here for him to conquer this land and finally and fully fulfill the promise of this land, if this is going to happen. So let's look at Romans 11. God is not done with Israel. You can read Romans 9 through 11. I'll encourage you to do that. And it's all about God's election and God chooses whom he wills. Uh, it doesn't, you, we don't, God doesn't answer to us if he hardens Pharaoh's heart or he doesn't harden it. He doesn't answer to us. <laughs> he answers to no one. He's God. So if God wants to, um, and we'll see uh, at the end of Romans 11, verse 25, we'll pick up there. Uh, and there's more we could say, but this isn't a study on Romans. We'll get to that in Sunday mornings. Uh, verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, um, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. When you see brothers in the New Testament, he's talking to Christians. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Israel is different than the brothers. Uh, and anyone who knows Christ and is a brother doesn't have a hardening of his heart against God. Um, but we see, as Paul, <laughs> as Paul has seen over and over again, who stoned Paul and left him for dead? It was Jewish people. Who, who made Paul's missionary journeys difficult and followed him around and tried to turn uh, magistrates against Paul? It was the Jewish people. They hated Paul. When he went back to Jerusalem, they, they said, we're going to covenant, we're going to eat until we kill this guy. <laughs> they absolutely hated Paul. Why? Well, the same reason they hated Stephen, and they hated the apostles, they hated the church, they hated Jesus. Why? <laughs> because he is their Messiah. So, but this is a partial hardening, it's temporary hardening, has come upon Israel. Paul's telling the Romans. The Roman brothers are likely Gentile Christians distinct from national Israel. Whenever you see Israel against the brothers, they're not the same, and they haven't. You'll see here that uh, the brothers haven't replaced Israel in God's plan because of the everlasting possession and the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. So uh, back in verse 25, until the fullness of the Gentiles had come in. So the partial hardening comes upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Uh, verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. This will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Did this happen on the first coming of Christ? No, he did not banish ungodliness from Jacob. He revealed ungodliness from Jacob, and the ungodliness caused them to want to kill Jesus and put him on a cross. The second coming, though, of Christ at the end of the tribulation uh, will likely uh, be the fulfillment of this. Uh, verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. They being the Israelites now, as he's writing, and as they are to this day, most uh, Jewish people are enemies of the gospel. They're enemies for your sake, but as regards election, okay, as my choosing, God's choosing, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Israel, national Israel, is always going to be beloved because of the forefathers. And when you see forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you see it in the Old Testament, you see it in the New Testament, those three together are the forefathers. 
The Abrahamic covenant was given through Isaac, not Ishmael, not Abraham's other children. It was given to Jacob again, not Esau. Esau and the Edomites, they're destroyed. Uh, it is only given to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, or Jacob. And so all of Israel is going to be saved. When does this happen? It happens, if you read Revelation, 144,000 witnesses are all Israelites. And they're likely going to, during the tribulation, going to go throughout the Jewish communities. And the massive amount, if not nearly all, of the Israelites are going to come to Christ during the tribulation time. This is the time of the Gentiles. Most of the majority of people getting saved now in the church age or in this age uh, before the tribulation are Gentiles. But Paul's saying and telling us, Okay, this is a mystery. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Okay, so you may think this is not revealed. Now I'm going to reveal this to you. God, through Paul, is going to tell us that God's not done with national Israel. Why? Because of the sake of the forefathers. that God chose them, and he is not done with them. And the promises he made to Abraham, Abraham took God literally. And as we read God's word, we take it literally. And we'll, we'll tell you what's at stake in a second. Verse uh, 29, they, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Okay, when God promises gifts and choosing, he's not changing his mind. Verse 30, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So a lot of the Gentiles are receiving the gospel. And Paul tried to go to the Jewish people first. He rejected him. He said, okay, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And a lot of Gentiles loved the fact that they could be in God's family. And so the Gent the Jewish people are disobedient now. They're disobedient in Paul's day. But he says, you have received mercy because of their disobedience. Verse 31, so that they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And he concludes this beautiful section on election with, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out or unscrutable his ways. And it's all about God and his glory for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Here's the problem with saying that the promise that is mentioned four times as a forever kingdom or forever land promise is temporary. It's already been fulfilled. David, Abraham didn't think that. I'm pretty sure because he took God at his literal word. God doesn't promise everlasting possession and forever and thinking, oh, there's an end date of so many thousand years. Nope. David promised an everlasting kingdom, a forever kingdom. He's not thinking, oh, well, just while I'm alive or just for a few generations. No, he's thinking forever. And he talks like that to God. When we are promised everlasting life, how do we take it? How do we present it to the world? Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eh, some, some life. <laughs> you'll have life for a thousand years in heaven. You'll enjoy that. And then in a thousand years, God's going to kick you out. What? That's not salvation. That's terror. You can't enjoy it. So we, we love, we love literal translations when it, when it, um, approves of us whenever it benefits us 
but wh why do some str struggle with the literal interpretation of, okay, God promised a forever possession to the nation of Israel through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and reiterated it to Moses even in Exodus 32, 13. So when is it fully and finally fulfilled? Well, during the millennium, Christ comes, and where does he come? He goes to national Israel. He plants his feet on the Mount of Olives. He sets up a kingdom on earth, and he reigns for a thousand years. After that, the nations of the world gather around in Revelation 20 as the sand of the sea in rebellion against God, and fire comes out of heaven and destroys all of Christ's enemies. And then he reigns forever and ever. If God was done with national Israel, the new Jerusalem that's mentioned in Revelation 21 and 22 have layers of uh, foundations, and the foundations are the 12 tribes of Israel. So when Dan goes off into apostasy, God had a plan to have Ephraim and Manasseh, both sons of Joseph, be the other tribe. of the. So there had to be 12 tribes of Israel. When Judas Iscariot uh, is an apostate and is revealed as the as the betrayer. Um, he is replaced in Acts 1 as one of the first things that the early church does after Jesus ascends. Why? Because there are 12 gates that represent the church in Revelation 20. And the, the names of the 12 apostles are on those gates. So there has to be 12 tribes of Israel. There has to be 12 um, apostles and as James gets killed, he's not replaced because he doesn't uh, uh, is an apostate, and that's why he he's not an apostle. So, as the apostles start getting martyred, they don't get replaced anymore. Um, but there has to be twelve tribes of Israel, and the New Jerusalem coming down from heaven is is the Old Testament and New Test and national Israel combined with the Gentiles who have all have followed Christ, all are recognizing Christ as King. And that's when the everlasting, um, I believe, the everlasting uh, possession is finally realized. Until then, we take God at his word. And when God says forever and everlasting possession, we say, I don't think that means temporary. I don't see it being fulfilled. It has to go on forever. And we do see the fulfillment in Revelation 20 uh, to 22. A lot to think about. If you have questions, let me know.